bear with me just a moment. Jason, is this on? Do we know? I was trying to go and try to use the pointer. It might be now. Well, it was it was off. Okay. Which it always helps. Oh. It's probably got a dead battery in it. Bear with us just a moment. Yeah, I'll do that. You're joining us today as a visitor. Each spring, we have what we call uh, a lecture series. And this year is probably about year 20, as I recall. Various things from year to year. This year, we're talking about questions from the Bible. Uh, there are a lot of them. And Brother Simon put together a list, and we worked on that list a little bit. And we gave each, each of the men that we selected to speak an, an opportunity to, to pick from that list. And during the last three weeks, we have spent our time in the New Testament with three of our questions. We talked about what is truth. Brother DeWitt brought that lesson to us. The question that Pilate asked Jesus the morning that he was crucified. Jesus was asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Before he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then last week, the question was, if God is for us, who can be against us? A rhetorical question that Paul asked in his declaration of God's everlasting love. This week, we make a return to the Old Testament, and perhaps a familiar question to us, but maybe a little lesser-known biblical character, and that was the minor prophet from the Old Testament, Micah. So I ask you to begin by joining me in Micah chapter 6, and we will start by reading the question that is um, the purpose of our study this morning. Micah chapter 6 and in verse 8. I'm using mostly the English Standard Version today. I'll, I may flip back and forth a little bit, little bit between it and the New King James. Micah 6 and verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In just a few short words, question and question answered. And it's one of these verses that I kind of think of when I read it. Hey, it's all right here in one place. If we want to know what we can do to be pleasing to God, it's all right here. There's a lot of those in Scripture. Just a couple of that came to my mind as I was compiling my thoughts. Uh, Colossians 4 and verse 6. Paul said as he in the last chapter of Colossians, as he was compiling his closing thoughts, he said, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how to answer each person. He was talking about how to convert the lost. 
Also in Revelation 2 and verse 10, our Lord said, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Very short, succinct things that say so much in just a few words. So back to Micah. Back to Micah. If we can follow these requirements of justice, kindness, and humility, this verse tells us that we know that we can be pleasing to God. He requires it. That's that's in the question. What does the Lord require of you? And it's a question that's rich in meaning. It's more than just a few words that we have here and one that deserves our study. So where I'd like to begin is talk about the setting and context of Micah's prophecy. I hope you can see that okay. That was actually a picture that I made from a, a book that I have. But talk. I, I like time frames. I like years. And I like to know who were the other people at the time. I think that kind of helps us understand the overall uh, thought of, of the book of Micah. He prophesied to the northern and southern kingdoms. Um, He was a contemporary. As you'll see here, we've got the prophets in the middle. So here's Micah. He was a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea. Amos was about two decades before the time of Micah. We have the kings of Judah, or some of them, here on the right. And you may can see a time scale here on the right as well. And the last several kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, It was during the 8th century B.C. when Micah prophesied roughly from about 738 to 695, give or take a few years. But anyway, encompassing about four decades uh, during his his prophecy. As I mentioned before, it was during the time of the divided kingdom. And it began during these last few kings, perhaps the last three of... Israel, And his prophecy would have extended past the time that the northern kingdom fell into Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. In uh, Micah chapter 1 and verse 1, we're told that he was from Morasheth. Or Morasheth Gath, is it, it's, it's referred to that. Uh, it's referred to Morasheth Gath in verse 14 of chapter 1. So I found this map from the internet. So we know it's accurate. But anyway, I liked it. So, And it had Micah here at Morasheth Gath. So I wanted to put it up because it shows his contemporaries as well. As I mentioned a minute ago, Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos. You see it's to the southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, And it's considered to be um, one of five main Philistine cities. And it was thought to be perhaps one of King Rehoboam's fortified cities. It would have been on a major route uh, here towards the the southwest, towards Egypt, which would have been in this direction. So it was uh, perhaps a, a city that there was a lot of travel. So the Gath part. Morasheth, Gath. If Gath sounds familiar, there's, there's reason for that. A lot of history during the early days of um, Israel. 
One that you may remember is in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant of God and placed it in their pagan house of worship to Dagon. And that was in Gath. Remember, Dagon's statue fell over. They came in. They propped it back up. The next day, their, their uh, idol had its hands, and uh, it was just basically a torso left. So then they decided, well, we need to return this. Or they returned the ark to Gath, rather. And the story continues. Remember Goliath? The great story of the David and Goliath? He was from Gath. First Samuel chapter 17, David, when he was on the run from Saul before he became king, he escaped to Gath in First Samuel chapter 21. So a lot of history here in this city of Moresheth Gath in, from the early days of the United Kingdom, 400 years later. That's where we are today during the prophecy of Micah, 400 years after these events that I just mentioned a moment ago. Now let's talk now kind of big picture about the book of Micah itself. It's just seven short chapters. There are some key words and ideas that are very common with the writings of many prophets. Assurance, mercy, faithlessness, iniquity, transgression. Covenant, steadfast. And though you see a common theme here with Micah um, that we see really in many of the prophets, as I mentioned. In chapters 1 through 3, God's judgment is surely coming because of the sins of his people. He declared that there was an impending judgment directed to Samaria northern kingdom and Jerusalem. Chapter 2 mentioned specific sins like planning evil, covetousness, theft, violence, drunkenness. And chapter 3 denounces individuals for their sins like the rulers of the day, princes, false prophets, and even other leaders. God has promised over and over hope to His faithful people that's really the message of chapters 4 and 5. In Micah 4, we'll read a couple of verses. Micah 4, verses 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Chapters, or chapter 6, rather, the message is to repent now and receive forgiveness because I am God. Chapter 6, he, God reminds His people how He rescued them from Egyptian slavery. He did that more than once through the years. They needed to hear that. And that He is always a righteous judge. In chapter 6 and in verse 4, Micah 6 verse 4, 
For I brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And in chapter 7, God reminds them that only He can pardon and forgive sin. And in chapter 7, verse, we'll read a few verses there, chapter 7 and in verse 18, it's, it's really the declaration of God's steadfast love and how compassionate He is as our God. Chapter 7 and verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression from the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And as I mentioned earlier... Micah's message and warnings and encouragement uh, were very similar to the other prophets, especially of his day. So let's talk a little bit more about what is said about Micah in the Old Testament. Let's fast forward about 70 years to the book of Jeremiah, or the prophecy of Jeremiah, and in Jeremiah chapter 26. And in verse 18, Jeremiah chapter 26 and verse 18. This was at the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. I don't have my list up there anymore. But anyway, uh, is in the 7th century B.C. And this was Josiah's son, Jehoiakim. In chapter 26... God tells Jeremiah, the prophet, under consideration here, to go to the temple and to tell all the people that destruction is coming unless they repent. Remember that message that I talked about that gets repeated and that, that idea that keeps coming back? It's the same here. To uh, tell the people that destruction is coming unless they repent. Surprisingly, not. They didn't like what he had to say. And they wanted to execute Jeremiah. And Jeremiah told them, well, if if that's what you're going to do, if you're going to kill me, just I just want to remind you that I am only saying what the Lord told me to say and that innocent blood will be on your hands if you do this. It was then that some of the wiser, older, they're called elders in this text, The elders of the land had a light bulb go off, a moment of deja vu, and they recalled the prophecy of Micah. And in verse 18, they said, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and said to all the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, 
and the mountain of the Lord, or the mountain of the house, a wooded height. Verse nineteen: Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah, put him to death? Meaning Micah. Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. So the same prophetic warning from Micah chapter 3 and verse 12, and the elders were simply saying, isn't Jeremiah just telling us the exact same thing that Micah told Hezekiah? Did they execute Micah? No. Well, shouldn't we listen also? And they did, um, at least at that moment. Also, um, back to our uh, book of Micah in verse 1 and verse 1 where he were introduced, it told that his prophecy was during the reign of these three kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And verse 1 specifies that he was prophesying to both kingdoms, north and south. I'm guessing that maybe um, we're only told these three kings because he was physically located in the southern kingdom of Judah. But anyway, those last two or three kings before Israel fell into Assyrian captivity would, would have been Pekahiah, Pekah, and Hosea. So the reign, the reign of these three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, covered a period of roughly six decades. Jotham, the first, was the fourth good king in a row that Judah had had. Probably the, most, the longest run of the good kings of Judah. <clears throat> Excuse me. That period of four good kings lasted just over a century. <clears throat> Ahaz, the middle king, on the other hand, was very wicked. He practiced the worship of Baal and Molech. You know, the practice of Molech was sacrificed your children by fire. That seemed to be popular among some of the kings over, that, over the period of, of the divided kingdom. He, uh, he was engaged during his reign with civil war with Israel. He was besieged by Syria. And he begged military assistance from Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, began to make an alliance with him, looted the temple, gave away all kinds of treasures during his, during his reign as well. Hezekiah, the third in our list here, Overall, was a good king, a very good king. He had a problem with pride late in life. But his leadership brought Judah back to a better relationship with God. He had removed the pagan places of worship, restored the temple, and the proper observance of the Passover. So these are the times during which Micah prophesied. Good after a long, run, a, a long run of good kings coming to an end, a very wicked king, and then a good king again. This is, uh, this is the setting in which he lived. There are, um, there are at least two references from the book of Micah in the New Testament. 
in uh, Micah chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2 being the corresponding scripture. You may recall that in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus has been born and the wise men are in search of him. King Herod also knew that Jesus had been born and he perceived this as a threat to his throne. He wanted to know more and he wanted to know where about the birth of Jesus. And he was told by the Jewish leaders, let me flip over to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2 and in verse 5. In, Beth, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So back in Micah chapter 5, we'll read that corresponding passage in Micah chapter 5. Verse 2, beginning, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, talking about Christ, who is coming, whose coming forth is from of, from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return the flock to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So one of the many prophecies of Jesus from the Old Testament being referenced in the New Testament one other from Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus has chosen his 12 apostles and sent them out on what we often call the limited commission, only to the Jews. He warns them of the difficulty and persecution they will face and that their message will divide families. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 35, it says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Micah chapter 7, and in verse 6, there was a very similar account. Matthew, Micah 7, in verse 6, For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his household. So let's... Um, Let's move ahead then to our question under consideration today. And we'll read this again, Micah 6 and verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice 
and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Three things from this text required by the Lord. And when you think about the time and the context and the environment in which Micah lived and and his prophecy was foretold, these attributes were highly desired by God from the kings, the priests, all the people. Highly desired, but sadly not found often enough. So, good time for a reminder from the prophet of the things that if you do these things, you can be pleasing to the Lord. So, these three items, we'll break them down, talk about them one at a time. Do justice or seek justice. I defined, well, Webster defined justice as a concern for peace, a genuine respect for people, and the condition of being morally correct or fair. Justice is a theme throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. It was an attribute that was solid to the character of Abraham. God knew that. When we were introduced to the story of God choosing Abraham, and in Genesis 18 and verse 19, God said, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. He knew that Abraham possessed this key quality that he would need to be the father of the children of Israel. God himself, we know, is just. And in Deuteronomy, we'll just look at one passage there. In Deuteronomy chapter 32 and in verse 4. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4. The rock, speaking of God, His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And back in our book today, back in the book of Micah, we can talk about uh, justice as well. And in chapter 3, a couple of verses, verses 1 and 9, Micah 3, verse 1. Micah had declared to the leaders of the day, aren't you supposed to really know what justice is all about? Aren't you supposed to be righteous? Chapter 3 and verse 1, he said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Sadly, the leaders of the day had chosen not to be just. In verse 9, Micah recognized this and said, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Jesus, obviously, would have been a man of justice. In Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 18 Jesus makes reference to a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. 
Matthew 12 and verse 18. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. We have to be fair. I'm talking about us now. We have to be fair, we have to be just, and we have to be respectful of all people. It's a very tall order in the society that we live. It's one that seems to be virtually non-existent among a lot of the people that we know. Some of being just and fair with one another. It means loving our enemies, as Jesus commanded in Matthew chapter 5. It means praying for our government, from 1 Timothy chapter 2. It means understanding that everyone has a soul that God does not want to see perish in hell, 2 Peter chapter 3. It means leaving vengeance to God, Romans chapter 12. That's what justice is about, in just a few words. We could spend... A long time on any of these three. Um, that's justice. Well, let's talk about mercy a little bit. Or kindness. Uh, the King James and New King James use the word mercy. It's compassion or forgiveness shown when someone... This is the key part for me in this definition. Compassion or forgiveness shown from someone... Whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. We can be kind to people, but merciful is a little different. Merciful is when we don't have to be. Merciful is when we have the power. I shouldn't say we. It's really a God thing. God is the one that has the capability to be merciful. As we see in Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, it says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul knew how merciful God had been to him. And he talked about that some in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as he reflected on his former life. In verse 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul said, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted in ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We are to be kind and merciful toward others, just as God is toward us. In Luke 6, 36, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. So not only can we be, we're commanded to be merciful. Because that's what God has shown us. Um, if we can't be merciful towards people, 
If we can't forgive, then we know we know what the result of that's going to be. We're not going to we're not going to be forgiven, and God won't be merciful with us. In uh, Philippians chapter two, Paul was um, exhorting the brethren there. Philippians chapter 2 and in verses 1 through 3. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each other let each esteem others better than himself. In Hebrews chapter 4, as the writer has been making his case that Christ is our high priest, we're exhorted to obtain mercy from the one who knows us best and who knows our weaknesses. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 16. Now, actually, back up to verse 14 and, and begin. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to, to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that was from Hebrews 4 and in verse 16. So when you think about the mercy from God and you join that with the definition that we had up here, God certainly has the power. He has the right to punish us because we're all sinners. But thanks be to God that He is merciful and He does not want us to be punished. So he's provided a way and he's provided hope through the sacrifice, death, and resurrection of Jesus our Lord. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15 and 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Walk humbly with our God. And I define this as aligning our daily lives with the example of Christ and teachings of the New Testament. When Paul was a prisoner in Rome, he encouraged the Christians in Ephesus to walk or to live like this in Ephesians 4 and in verse 2. He said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He also penned the book of Colossians while he was a prisoner and said a very similar thing to those brethren in Colossians 3 and in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See all these, I'm just going to go back and recap all these good things that come from starting with some humility. Humility being one of those cornerstones of our lives. Gentleness, compassion, kindness, patience, meekness, forgiveness, forbearing love for our brethren, unity, harmony, and peace, all from humility, all from just starting it out right by being humble. Justice, mercy, and walking humbly. Instruction from our Lord preserved through the ages that has not changed. It worked for His people then, those that chose to follow the instruction. It'll work for us now. Foundational to our character, these three elements. And let's make sure that this is part of our daily lives as Christians. And I appreciate your kind attention this morning.